there. And so uh, I became a mail carrier for the campus. That's how I started my career. Wow. And uh, did that for about a year and a half, delivering mail to campus departments. And that actually turned out to be quite a wonderful experience. I liked the people I was working with. I learned a lot about people. Uh, some people uh, were very polite and very appreciative. Other people uh, thought I was a servant and uh, not worthy of their attention or their courtesy. And uh, so you learned a lot about people. And a lot of times I'd be carrying these heavy boxes and you learn about students. Some students yeah. uh, will open the door for you and hold it open. Other people will let it slam shut in your face. And so then you start paying attention to things like that. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Mamta Akapati. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. Today's episode is also sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each of our sponsors. As I mentioned, I'm Mamta Akapati. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am broadcasting to you today from Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas is situated on the unceded ancestral homelands of the Humanos, Coahuiltecan, Comanche, Lipan Apache, and Tonkawa peoples. Today, I have the honor of sharing space with one of my mentors, Dr. Pat Hayashi. Pat has an expansive constellation of lived experiences, some of which we'll hear about today. As we continue to think about our duty of care to equity and inclusion in higher education, I am especially moved by how his professional experiences model living a life of courage in support of the dignity of others. In 1988, he became the highest ranking administrator in the UC system. In 1999, he joined the UC's Office of the President where he served as Associate President under President Richard Atkinson. After retiring in 2004, Pat took up art if this, brief if this brief introduction hasn't piqued your excitement about the stories that Pat has to share, you just wait. This is going to be a beautiful and amazing conversation. Okay, so Pat, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Student Affairs Now, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited. This is going to be fun. Um, so, you know, as as we start and, uh, you know, you're somebody uh, who I've known, I've had the opportunity to know for, for quite some time. And so I don't know how we contain an introduction of your journey, um, but we're going to try. So if, if we could start, can you tell me a little bit about you um, and how did you end up in higher education? Um, I went to Hayward High School. 
and there was a class of 500. And I, my class ranking was 250. And so I was very proud of that. I think it's relatively straightforward to be number one or number 500. But be dead center. <laughs> that takes time. <laughs> so obviously, I was not academic material. I went to San Jose State mainly to play tennis. I was on their tennis team. And that's how I uh, thought about myself, uh, mm -hmm. mainly as an athlete. And that's what I love doing. And I'm not exactly sure how, uh, but one semester I did very, very well. And I knew a lot of people who went to Berkeley and, and mainly through tennis. And uh, I decided to try to transfer to Berkeley. So I transferred in my junior year and uh, I was a pre-med student and uh, and I ran into chemistry 1A and I had absolutely no idea what was going on in that class. And oh, wow. I just got crushed and also crushed in physics. Um, and I didn't uh, flunk out, but I did very, very poorly. So I, I uh, uh, withdrew and uh, went to work at a, um, Western Electric as a mail carrier. And uh, after nine months, I decided, well, I really should go back to school, but I, I'm clearly not going to go into medicine. Uh, the only thing I really liked to do was read. And so I decided to transfer to San, San Francisco State okay. and study English literature there. But they turned me down because wow. at, at the time, San Francisco State was uh, very strong in English. And um, uh, this is when a lot of, you know, the beat movement was in, in force and, and uh, a lot of people like to go to San Francisco State to study English. But because I had uh, withdrawn from Berkeley in good standing, yeah. I could go back into Berkeley and I uh, majored in English. Uh, that was a, a huge mistake because uh, I had two years, I was returning as a junior and I had two years to make up four years of work. And so I was taking classes, oftentimes three lit classes, you know, a semester and I'd have to read five or six novels in a week. It was really hard. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and, and they didn't tell me that if you're an English major, not only do you have to read, you also have to write, and, <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to write, and and so it was hard. And so I I graduated. I I if you counted all my physical education courses, I graduated with about a three point oh, um, mm -hmm. and uh, that wasn't enough to get you anywhere. And so uh, I became a mail carrier for the campus. That's how I started my career, wow. and. Uh, did that for about a year and a half, delivering mail to campus departments. And that actually turned out to be quite a, a wonderful experience. I liked the people I was working with. I learned a lot about 
people. Uh, some people uh, were very polite and very appreciative. Other people uh, thought I was a servant and uh, not worthy of their attention or their courtesy. And uh, so you learned a lot about people. And a lot of times I'd be carrying these heavy boxes and you learn about students. Some students yeah. uh, will open the door for you and hold it open. Other people will let it slam shut in your face. And so then you start paying attention to things like that. Yeah. Um, one afternoon I was in the social sciences building picking up mail and um, and I was walking down this uh, corridor and I hear, and I said, I couldn't believe it. Someone was whistling at me wow. and, and, and he keeps whistling and I ignore it. And I walk down and he, and he runs up and he catches up with me and he says, didn't you hear me? And I looked at him and I recognized him. He was a, a, a very well-known radical sociology professor, young guy. And he, uh, he, he, he says, didn't you hear me? And I said, do you, do you whistle at dogs and mailmen? And he looked at me, looked at me up and down and said, should I have called you sir? And he drops in my mailbag about 50 envelopes that were stamped with his own stamps and handwritten. And uh, they were clearly invitations to a party. Mm. And, and so I'm walking along, finishing my route, saying, don't let it bother you. You're a better person than he is. But after you say that for an hour, you realize that it is bothering you. So I went through, I picked out his his packet of envelopes and I, there were 50 and I took 25 and I threw them away. And um, and it made me feel wonderful, actually. Yeah. Oh. And I don't know why I'm sharing this, but I guess it gave me a sense of how it feels to be at the bottom mm. of the pecking order. And um and how you can screw people up if you are there, you know, so yeah. So I I then um the campus opened uh, a management training program mm -hmm. and and it was a brilliant program. The idea was that they would date young people and um and I was in the first class. There were two of us selected out of mm -hmm. several dozen. And um, the idea was we would rotate in the core programs, such as mm -hmm. accounting, purchasing, contracts and grants, uh, uh, human resources, to get a, a broad understanding of the basic administrative structure. And then, and then after that, uh, departments could bid on you and offer you a mm -hmm. job, and, and it was a wonderful experience. And and um, I, I I learned a lot. And mm -hmm. I, the first job I took was as a contract and grant negotiator, and and in the contract sponsored projects office. 
and that it's typically it's more or less a routine clerical task. You you check to make sure that the salaries requested are right and the overhead rate is right and so forth. And and um, and there were different overhead rates for different agencies and the like. And but I did something more than that. I I actually read the grant proposals, mm -hmm. and so it, for me it was a form of continuing education. And and the grant proposals were wonderful. They they uh, explained the the state of the academic discipline and where they fit in there and why this proposal would advance the knowledge. And sometimes I had an opportunity to talk to some of the people. You know, one guy uh, was studying petrified scats, mm. the uh, petrified feces in mm. Peru. So he comes in and and I, I said, I hope you don't mind me asking, but why would anyone want to study petrified scats? And he said, because you learn a huge amount about a society. If you mm. study their scats, you know what they ate. Mm. And you, you'll know whether they're a fishing uh, community, uh, agricultural community, hunters and gatherers. You know if they're nomads. If you know what they ate, you'll know if they cooked and how they cooked. And if you know what vessels they used, you know what kind of technology they had evolved to. And if you know all that, then you then you know quite a lot about their so, social structure. And I said, wow, that, that's really nice. you know. And so then I started reading these uh, proposals even more carefully. And, th yeah. and then I, I went, I uh, started working for the budget and planning office. And uh, one of my jobs, was to uh, review uh, proposed faculty appointments and also proposed uh, merit increases in promotions. And, and at the time, now this was in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. At the time, uh, the personnel form would come uh, along with their complete personnel file. And, and so I was, I was just supposed to check the numbers, but I read everything. And these are the highly confidential uh, person, personal reviews that uh, are, are done secretly. You know, if, it, if a person is put up for tenure, uh, that person's file is sent out to other faculty and they give their secret uh, uh, candid assessment, and they were really candid. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I got a look at the faculty appointment and review and promotion process like no one else ever would get, you know, who's not privy to that. And that was a huge education. It sounds like then, your English, it sounds like your English major paid off all the reading. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I I just found it fascinating, you know, because I got a look behind the scenes that were just that that was rare. And as you know, you know, this stuff is 
in bank vaults now. You can't read it mm -hmm. stuff. And, and I wasn't supposed to read it then. And then what, what happened was um, in 1969, there was something called the Third World Liberation Front Strike. Uh, yeah. It started at San Francisco State, but it quickly uh, spread to Berkeley. And um, one of my responsibilities was to set up uh, the Ethnic Studies Department. The faculty uh, agreed to, to have an Ethnic Studies Department, partly because it was an extremely violent strike. The Wheeler Auditorium, the largest lecture hall in the campus was uh, burned down. Uh, a lot of the students on campus were armed. Uh, there was a lot of Black Panther involvement. Um, and so uh, the campus essentially said, well, let's try this. And so my job was to set up their budget. And uh, there was African-American studies, uh, Chicano studies, Native American studies, and Asian American studies. This was, this was the moment where, where the term Asian American was coined. You know, because we thought that the uh, term Oriental yeah. had pejorative colonial you know, uh, implications. And so I, I met with the student leaders. They were all students, grad students, undergrads. And they were very, very friendly. They were extremely militant, but they were very friendly to me. And, and you know, they said, um, what did you study? And I said, well, I was an English major. And he says, well, we could really use you uh, because we would like you to, we're teaching this class on freshman reading and composition. And uh, we'd love it if you taught. And I said, geez, I barely graduated, you know, and I can't do that. Yeah. But I went over there and I and I started working as a teaching assistant in one of their freshman composition classes. And then within, you know, one quarter, we were on quarters then, I became an instructor, had my own class, developed my own syllabus, taught my own students in my own way. And, and that was fascinating because as you know, the best way to learn something is to teach it. You know, and so I, so, in the process, yeah. I destroyed hundreds of students, but I came away learning how to write. Um, and and I enjoyed it quite a lot. At the time, there wasn't any Asian American literature to speak of. Uh, yeah. There was very, very little Hispanic literature. Um, there was some Native American literature, F. Scott Mamaday, for example, was on the Berkeley faculty. And, and so uh, there was a lot of Black literature. And, and so I ended up teaching uh, some Chicano literature uh, and a lot of Black literature. And James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, uh, mm -hmm. Stokely Carmichael, you know, uh, and and I found that it resonated with me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, their experience, um, there were a lot of similarities between 
the black experience and and the Asian American experience, the racism. Um, but for me, the the part that resonated most was the what I learned from James Baldwin, which was the uh, helplessness and and accompanying rage that develops when you grow up in white society, and um, so I, I learned a whole lot about that. And then because I had uh, worked in the administration, uh, I was the only one there who knew anything about how the campus worked. So within about a year, I became head of the program. By then I was 26 or 27 and head of an academic program, uh, which was a joke. Wow. But, wow. but uh, because we're mainly student run, student taught, uh, we thought that we were preparing students for the revolution um, and which would come momentarily. There were two black studies faculty were murdered. Um, uh, you know, I, in the Asian American studies, we held a, a court a trial of two people who we thought were undercover agents. And the wow. question was, should they be executed? And so that was the kind of atmosphere I grew up in. And all of it scared me because I, I'm scared of guns. I don't like them at all. And, yeah. and but everyone, all my friends were armed on campus and armed, heavily armed as well. And um, one, of my, one of my friends was a guy named Richard Aoki, Richard, um, was the most militant of Asian Americans. He was the one who gave the Black Panthers their first weapons and taught them how to use them. And he was a Black Panther. And um, he was always armed um, and, and nearly always drunk. So that wasn't a good combination. And uh, uh, he he uh, was a scary guy. Much later, it turned out that he was also an FBI informant. Uh, this is 30 years or 40 years after that. He, he became legitimate. He joined the Alameda Community College faculty, became chair of their academic senate, and, you know, lived this life of this former radical who is now an academic leader at a, a a good community college and a an investigative reporter uh, was doing research on that period uh, and he found through the freedom of information act that richard was a fbi informant mm. and and he got his fbi files and by a mistake they did not redact his name so there it was all, you know, when he gave his reports and his name and he was confronted by it, by this, by this journalist. And, um, and I think his response was, well, those were difficult times, complicated times. Yeah. And so then he, after a while, went home and uh, killed himself yeah. because it just, you know, it just couldn't last. Well, well, you know, as I, I would say, as I hear you reflect, I mean, 
there is a lot to be, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to paint the picture verbally. I, I know that you're an artist, um, but to, to verbally paint this picture for the rest of us who didn't live during this time to understand what the climate and environment um, and sacrifices people made, but also, right, I mean, we, these are conversations that are uh, that we we are still having today about, you know, uh, people's sense of safety, whether they feel they should, you know, we, that they should be armed or levels of trust across dimensions of power. And so um, there, there's a, it's just, you, you paint the messiness so well um, to, to just demonstrate how complicated um, and intense um, those times were and what it means to navigate through that and the grief and the price that people paid uh, along along that journey. It was a tough time. Uh, one of the reasons I uh, mention it is because I've noticed that in a lot of student services leaders that I've met over my career, many of them have had a similar journey where they have um, had to deal with uh, yeah racial issues, usually by themselves. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate enough to be in a movement and um and it 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 points you in a certain direction. It makes you yeah a little bit from your colleagues. Yeah. Well that though that's not even true. You know, I, I found out that one of my closest friends, a white guy, uh was really involved in the anti-war movement mm -hmm. and and experienced similar things yeah. that, to what I, but it's just not something that you shared. Yes, you, yes, that you openly talk about. So how do you get, I mean, I mean, you know, again, our conversation could go on for days and we have a limited time in this podcast together. How do you get from ethics studies to the highest ranked Asian American administrator in the UC system? And, um, you know, wh what what did it mean for you to be in that position? What what happened is that um, in Asian American studies, I got burned out. I then, uh, my wife and I went to Japan with our daughter, lived there for two years. I ended up being a grad student there and I started to read about American higher education. And I uh, read all the classics. And uh, and I, I started to get a larger context of my experience. And so I wrote to public policy. I wrote to a, a professor I had, Mart Marty Tro. And Marty Tro uh, was one of the, was probably the foremost expert in higher education internationally in the world. And mm -hmm. so I wrote to him and I said, um, I had taken a course from him and Clark Kerr. That was mm -hmm. interesting. Clark Kerr had been the president of right. UC. And, and someone noticed that after he had been fired and, and he returned to his economics chair that he hadn't taught a course in two years. So they they had to put together a secret course, and they and I was asked 
in public policy if I wanted to take it. It was restricted to 12 students, all grad students. And we sat in this around this seminar table. And then outside of us were about 20 faculty wow. who wanted to Clark Kerr and Marty Tro have a conversation about higher education. And I thought that Clark Kerr would mail it in, that, you know, he would just go through the motions. But that's not Clark. He, every, every week, they came in with their latest thoughts and well-developed. And they had this amazing conversation between them. And so then I, I had the privilege of just hearing people talk and think. Mm -hmm. And then I paper and so forth. And, and um, but I that uh, was the first time I got to know Marty. Mm -hmm. Marty ended up being my dissertation chair, mm -hmm. and and he taught taught treated me very very well. He uh, spent a lot of time with me, introduced me to uh, uh, leaders in higher education like. He would take me to lunch when he had met with Clark Kerr, and Clark Kerr, in turn, mm -hmm. treated me very, very decently. And so, mm -hmm. for some reason, you know, I I was suddenly talking to the top people in the world, mm -hmm. and um, and I said, "Wow, that's interesting," <laughs> you know, and and um, um, so that that's that's you know. I, uh after I got back from Japan, I I went to work in student services. I headed up student conduct. Um and I re remember thinking, how am I gonna get out of this job? Mm. Because I I rape work with rapists demagogues and and cheats you know that's that's kind of your clientele and and i said should i do a really bad job or a really good job and but what happened is there were a lot of anti-apartheid demonstrations at the time mm -hmm. and so i got involved in protest management mm -hmm. and um i i'm sure you experience this when when there's a crisis on campus and student services personnel come out um, there are kind of two types of people, people who show up and move to danger and people who disappear, mm -hmm. you know, and oh, where they go, you know, I thought that, and, yeah. and I, I ended up in the group that showed up and, and so I got to know some people and I was, there was a protest management group, uh, that, that was chaired often by the chancellor, more often by his assistant, and we became close friends. And so uh, one of the things I learned is that in a crisis, uh, the hierarchy flattens. And if you're there, people get to know you and you get to know yourself under, under difficult yeah. circumstances, scary circumstances sometimes. And um, and you have to you, you have to kind of keep a civil head about you, and um, and I've seen some terrible things. You know, there was, there was a, 
students were built a shanty town around around the chancellor's building and it was a fire hazard and so then after a couple of weeks they d decide that they have to go and arrest the students and the buses come in at the middle of night yeah. and then they start to arrest they, they they make the announcement they start to arrest but and and the students protesters uh passively resist but another group which is much more militant uh um as the students were passively resisting while this um police handcuffed them, this more militant group starts throwing bricks and rocks over the police line into the demonstrators. And the and the police go crazy and they broke legs and everything. And so you're you're there and you're watching all this and you just learn a lot, you know, about what can go wrong. And then because of that experience, um, I was made the assistant to the chancellor and special assistant to the chancellor. That's like mm -hmm. right-hand person. And and um, and then there, there was a controversy over Asian American admissions. In 1986, Asian admissions was going up steadily. 1986 is drops. And, mm -hmm. and and the community leaders accused the campus of using illegal racial quotas mm. and uh, and we, which the campus was essentially doing mm. the, the they were worried about the rap of it becoming an Asian campus and the accompanying decline in white students mm. and so, so there was a four-year controversy over this, and it, it got national attention, international attention, in the uh, because people in Hong Kong and Singapore and you know China were all very interested in this, and and for Berkeley with with this you know reputation of being a progressive university, yeah. the chancellor was just mortified by this, and so it went on for four years, and then finally. Um, Largely at my urging, I suggested that he apologize. Um, and he didn't have to say that we intentionally discriminated, but he could say that we were not as sensitive as we should have been, which is what he did. And so then that broke the, the, the impasse. And the legislators were really joyful that he had done this. Uh, he got a lot of uh, kudos for doing this. And the, Community leader said, um, "Thank you, Chancellor Heyman. Mm -hmm. We appreciate this. Um, yeah. We can't help but notice that there are zero Asian Americans in leadership positions. And if you uh, mean what you say, you'll appoint at least one. So I, I would meet with Mike first thing in the morning, as soon as he came in, and mm -hmm. and we would go." day and you know and he was he was a big man and he wouldn't when he was upset he would pace around and he said you know pat the right should appoint an asian american but where in the hell could i find one and, and so that's how i got appointed <laughs> I said, my sense for the record written missions and finance uh, uh and enrollment 
And um, it was a political appointment. Yeah. Well, I so, four, yeah. Four levels. Uh, and wow. That's when I became the highest ranking API in, in the system. So as I and hear was, you, yeah. Well, as the I, appointment was covered in Newsweek. It yeah. was in the you know, New York Times, the Wall, Asian Wall Street Journal. It was in... Um, <laughs> Your Spiegel and The Economist. Yeah. Was, was, so as I hear you reflect, you know, as I hear you reflect on, you know, um, this journey, I mean, there's so much of, um, sometimes we think we have agency of our journey and we do, um, but sometimes the journey chooses us. And as I kind of see the moments, you know, these critical life moments, I feel um, in retrospect, it looks like like there was there was a moment that chose you, you know, whether you wanted to be part of it or not. And, you know, we haven't necessarily unpacked that. But even as I think about now, so here we are now in the snapshot in time, you're the highest ranked Asian American um, administrator in the UC system. I fast forward to today. Right. And, you know, just uh, in October, this past October, once again, um, the U.S. Supreme Court you know, was hearing arguments, you know, challenging race-based considerations and admissions right, um, with the Students for Fair Admissions group um, versus one versus UNC and one versus Harvard. Um, and of course, the arguments are this, you know, are, are they're the same arguments that we've heard as it relates to challenging of race-based admissions, you know, that that um, it's, it's a divisive across communities of color that, you know, there's disproportionate benefit to, to black students and Asian American students are disadvantaged in the process. As you see this happening today, <laughs> what comes up for you as you reflect on your own, because you've been part of these conversations throughout your career? In um, 1996, a group of people led by Ward Connerly, who is a Sacramento businessman and also a regent of the University of California, uh, he and a group of his uh, colleagues initiated Proposition 209. Uh, this was a proposition that if passed would prohibit the use of racial preferences in college admissions. And, and um, it got a lot of support initially and a lot of opposition. And, and um, it got strong support from whites and moderate support from Asians. And it was opposed by Hispanics and Blacks. I debated Ward uh, one evening. And I said to this audience, I said, let's take a vote. How many people here believe that's it's appropriate and valuable for Cal Berkeley to have a football team. And everyone votes yes. And I said, how many people think that it's important and valuable for Berkeley to have a competitive football team? And everyone votes yes. And then I said, how many people believe that, that it's appropriate to give uh, high caliber athletes preference in admissions so that we can have a 
competitive admit, uh, football team. And it, everyone votes yes. Then I said, let's stop and pause. We, as a group, have just established the policy principle that sometimes is uh, necessary and proper uh, to give admission preferences in order to meet an important institutional goal. And then I said, so the question facing us now is, is racial integration uh, an important institutional goal? And if it is, then it's necessary and proper for us to give uh, admission preferences to students from groups that are underrepresented. And then Ward Connerly, he, at that time, he was there. He jumped up. He said, <laughs> he said, that's not fair. That's not the question, you know, and then we went into it. But that's what I believe. Most people say, well, this is unfair fair to individuals. And in a way it is on some level. But there, there are a lot of things that universities do. For example, uh, preferences for legacies um, mm -hmm. that are, are done for the institutional purpose of mm -hmm. getting money. And, and I've always thought uh, since, well, even before Brown versus Board of Education that racial integration was an important goal of higher education. Yeah. And so that sometimes means that you let in someone from a certain group that doesn't have the same qualifications as someone else, but yeah. has every uh, probability of doing well in the university and contributing right. to it. And right. now in the court case, that, that um, part of the argument is being most compellingly by the the armed forces. Mm -hmm. Look, you know, the armed forces academies are saying we need, yeah. you know, racially integrated uh, or officer corps mm -hmm. because look at the diversity of our of our troops. Yeah, and so we need affirmative action. Have you ever found yourself? Um, I know that sometimes when I engage these conversations, particularly, uh, you know, I mean. Uh, sometimes we're not exposed to the history, the systemic history that you talk about, right? Um, and so we view the world kind of in our own singular lens, our own singular family's experience, not understanding the, the broad historical context. So have you ever found yourself in groups uh, of communities of color or in your case of Asian Americans, you know, that, that would disagree, right? Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lot, lots of people disagree. Um, yeah. uh, but I, I try to uh, frame it like I did with the debate with Ward Connolly about mm -hmm. that there are larger goals yeah. beyond the individual. And, uh, and I also, you know, uh, Proposition 209 mm -hmm. and so there are no racial preferences. Uh, and so then I was tasked with dismantling affirmative action. And one of the things that, that um, one of the beneficial aspects of, of that uh, defeat 
was that you also I I believe that you also had to uh, examine what we thought were the meritocratic criteria. Yes. And and the principal one was the SAT, and yes. we got into it. And I and I was a, a trustee of the College Board, which owns the SAT. And it's a terrible test, terrible. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is predict first year grades. That's the only thing it says it predicts. And and yet people take it as some sort of you know important metric of merit, but it's not. It, it's history is in the eugenics movement. It, um, it, it had a lot of aspects about it that are terrible. It's better now than it was before. The University of California, because of a lot of work by a lot of people, has has abandoned the SAT forever. You know, and and just we're not going to use this. This is all an awful test. We don't need it. It doesn't lead to better classes. It, it just is a convenient way to to exclude people. Uh, mm. So I think that's one of the things. The, the un I think first of all that the Supreme Court will strike down affirmative action, and it, and it will force good universities to look at how they evaluate people. At Berkeley, what we did is we moved to holistic admissions, where we looked at the entire, the whole person. Mm -hmm. um, we thought, I thought, that that would provide us cover to use surreptitious racial preferences. But it turns out that, that if you're charged with act, you know, administering a program lawfully, people behave the law, behave, you know, uh, adhere to the law. So, so didn't use racial preferences and black admissions dropped precipitously. There's no way of, 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 of there's no alternative to racial preferences. If you use income, um, mm -hmm. uh, you get it. You get a lot of poor whites and Asians. So it kind of has a reverse impact. Mm -hmm. You know, on average, the black and Hispanic applicant, the average black and Hispanic applicant, is um, poorer than the average white and Asian applicant. But there are a lot more poor white and Asian applicants who tend to have higher grades than the, the poor black and Hispanic applicant. And so it backfires. If you use um, rank in high school, which people thought that, oh, well, well let's, let's automatically admit the top 10% of each high school, thinking that you'd get these yeah. urban black high schools well, it turns out that there aren't urban black high schools in California. They're they're integrated, and at the top of the poor high schools are Asians, or if you, you know, and in the rural area they're whites, and so th those those preferences benefit whites and Asians, and and so it, it's tough. Yeah, and it doesn't. And I guess you know, as I hear you talk, at the end of the day, these processes don't get to that core goal of systemic change, right? If if we're not gonna understand 
that systems are set up in certain ways for certain communities to not have access far beyond if even before K, you know, if we're talking K through 12, and then you're you're going along a pathway of the system, then then certain communities are situated in a way that the opportunity um, is not available, right, or accessible because of the metrics that we put in place, the infrastructures that we put in place. I agree with that. I think that uh, Berkeley is doing a good job under under its current chancellor, Carol Chris, to find other ways, early outreach or early intervention, special recruitment programs and the like. Uh, it won't make up for racial preferences, but it'll mitigate it to a great deal. And it'll, and it'll heighten the awareness on campus about the importance of, of racial integration. Well, we've talked, you know, so, so far we've talked a lot about kind of your work and, and your higher ed journey. And I know that it's a very meaningful passion for you to talk about the journey that you've taken after retirement, right? And um, a lot of that is connected to personal well-being um, for you. Um, and I would love for you to share with us, you know, I, I just think so many of us, myself included, I just, you know, I've especially when you do identity-based work or justice-based work, there's just so much heaviness. And you even talked about at a point in your journey where you experienced burnout. Um, and so what guidance would you offer us and kind of in your journey, in your most recent set of journeys, um, how has well-being or how has art played a role in your well-being? What does well-being look like? What advice would you give us? Just I'll put a whole set of questions out there for you. Um, stepping back a little bit, uh, you, you described me as courageous. I never felt courageous. Uh, I never felt brave. Um, I never had a career plan. I never even had a career aspiration. Mm. I, I didn't think, well, I will do this and then I'll do this. And I just sort of took what came my way. I, in my career, I applied for one job after the mail carrier job. I applied for one job and I didn't get it. Uh, people just asked me to do things. And mm -hmm. and um, for example, when I became the highest ranked API, and I didn't apply for that job; it was given to me. And um, and same with associate president of the system; mm -hmm. I was just asked to do it. And um, but I think that one of the reasons I was able to to handle the, the responsibilities was that first I was motivated um, throughout my career by this deep-seated rage that came from being born in a concentration camp and seeing my family destroyed by a camp and uh, and um, and that led to certain kinds of uh, aesthetic and intellectual explorations, principally guided by James Baldwin and the Black writers. Uh, and at the same time, you know, as is clear from the work I did in contracts and grants, and the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm never bored. 
I find everything interesting. And if there's something about, you know, petrified scats, I that fascinates me. And mm -hmm. so whatever, whatever job I took, uh, I things interested me. And uh, so that kept me going. Uh, never really quite understood the rage, but um, I knew it was related to race. And, uh, and I knew it kept me fighting. Yeah. Now I, th I think, well, that's too bad because I think I could have done what I did without so much cost to me. And, mm. uh, and I think that when I retired and took up art and also simultaneously singing, that opened up uh, riches for me that if I had done that 40 years earlier, it would have been, I would have been a, a not only a much happier person, I think I would have been a nicer, kinder person. And uh, I think I would have been more creative politically and organizationally. And uh, so that, that, you know, I don't have many regrets, but one regret is that I didn't start singing and drawing a lot earlier. And uh, there, there is one thing I'd like to talk about. Um, yes. Microaggressions. Absolutely. Uh, when I became, got my big appointment, he jumped way up. I was suddenly at the cabinet level. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of the semester, um, there was a senior cabinet retreat at Bodega Bay for three days or something. And I go there and I'm nervous. And, you know, I don't think I belong there. And, um, and so some guy, well, they were talking about the new student body president. Um, his name was Jeff Chang, uh, who incidentally turned out to become brilliant, you know, mm -hmm. he's up yes. and stuff. And Time Magazine named him one of the 50 brightest young people in the United States. Um, and so, but they said, what do we know about the, the, the student government and the student body president, Jeff Chang? And no one knew him. And, uh, and so the uh, vice chancellor for student services, a guy named Mac Letch, says, well, I guess he's inscrutable. And, and I'm sitting there um, and I'm thinking, Oh, here it comes. Someone's going to slap him down for using this racist stereotype. Mm. And, and no one says a word. Mm. You know, there are 20 people, 24 people there. No one says a word. And, and I'm thinking, here at progressive, liberal, Berkeley, people let that kind of bullshit go. Mm -hmm. So finally, I raised my hand, and my voice is just trembling. And I say, 
people ask me what it's like to be the only Asian in an executive level position. And I said, for the, I tell them for the most part, it's wonderful. You know, I get to work on really intriguing issues, policy issues, political issues. And I get to work with very, very talented, dedicated, hardworking people. Uh, but I find that it's like walking across the stage, chatting with people on both sides of me, and we're having a good time. And then some fool will make a racist comment. And it's like a sandbag on a rope coming out of the rafters and knocks me head over heels just knocks my head, but no one else notices. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, it's dead quiet, right? No one says a word. And Chancellor Heyman calls for a recess. And during the break, a couple of people said, we don't understand why, why Mac Lech behaves that way. And but they didn't say it in public. They didn't say it in public. And, I, and I'm thinking, it's a public statement that's important. It's not the private commiseration and support. And then a week later, the highest ranking woman in the UC system, Doris Calloway, who was the vice, pro, who was the provost for professional schools and colleges invites me to lunch. And she was a world famous expert on nutrition. And she had in her office, a big poster that said, hunger is violence. And so she was talking and she said that when she was appointed to be the highest ranking woman in the system, one of her first uh, meetings when she was invited to the College of Engineering by the Dean of the college named Carl Piester. Really good man. And, and there are about, I think, 10 de departments in the College of Engineering. So she's meeting with all the department chairmen and they were all chairmen and and Carl introduces Doris as the professional schools and colleges, old mother Hubbard. And, and. Wow. And she says that um, she really respects Carl, knows he's a good person and didn't want to make an issue there. But when she got back, she sent him an immediate note about why this is hurtful, inappropriate, you know, and so forth. And as she's telling me this, and I said, well, what did Carl do? He said, she said, he immediately called me and apologized and thanked me for helping him learn. And so I realized it later that the reason she invited me to lunch is she was telling me that as sexism, has always been part of her career and always will be. 
racism will always be part of my career. And, um, and it would be wise for me to develop a repertory of responses. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, oftentimes you get blindsided when you least expect it from people you don't expect it from, right? And, and in situations where you're kind of, it's hard to be articulate, hard to speak up. And so she was saying, that's the way it's gonna be, but you can't be silent. You have to find ways to respond. And so I started to find different things. And so, you know, when things happen, I remember, what Doris did, and I would write a letter and give it to the person right away. And, you know, and so um, I actually thought, thought that was a good thing that because not only did I experience it, I actually got real genuine support from a colleague. Yeah, I think it's interesting, right, as I hear you reflect on this, too, and I've I don't know how I feel about the term microaggression because that's such a it's they're not they're not micro. No, <laughs> I know exactly. Yeah, what there's nothing mean. micro about it. Um, and I think about you know as I think about you and me, for example, generationally, and I think you know uh, there are sacrifices that you have made that I shouldn't have to make because you've made them, right? And so <laughs> right, you, you know, and so I think. Um, when I when I experience microaggressions, I sometimes have a different response because I'm like, we're in 2023 now, right? And so I get, you know, not that I, not that I give it a free pass in 1993, but we're in 2023. So, like, what responsibilities have shifted? What you know, what should we be expected to know as time has progressed? And but but what really rings true for me, and this connects to a, a earlier part of something that you said, is. Um, the rage that comes from the racism that we experience. So the rage that comes from the racism we experience combined with what it takes for us to be effective when we are in these senior roles, if, if we're talking about people uh, like in your past and my past, um, and uh, and that that's not a fair or unfair conversation. It's just a it's a conversation, right? So I'm not suggesting that it's fair that I have to find a repertoire or that you should have to find a repertoire to elegantly respond to microaggressions, but that is the situation we find ourselves in. Um, and the agency we have is how do we, how do we contribute to our own healing even though we didn't cause, right? The racism that we experienced that, that our own healing allows us to lead a joyful life um, like as you reflect on if I had taken up these other forms of expression earlier on, perhaps my life would have been healthier, right? Or, you know, I, I could, I could, there, there are different coping strategies that I could have as I move through being, playing my part to dismantle the isms. But it's, I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned it um, because it lets people like me know and the people, the podcast listeners and audience know we're not alone, right? This is, you know, as, as folks experience that, or if, if we are the one who has committed the microaggression, you know, that hopefully we can recognize the impact and take responsibility, you know, for our dismantling of, of those things. Well, I think your first statement was very important that micro. Yeah. Misnomer, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should find different words. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I, I just think over time, right? I mean, the microaggressions over time, right? It, it is, when you think about series, a lifetime of paper cuts, right? It, then yeah. then really is a, is a different, uh, significant impact on, on one's well-being and presence um, and spirit. Um, and so you, I... How have you handled? Well, you know, I feel like I'm a work in progress. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, 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 like you, I feel like I've taken on taking care of myself um, later than I would have liked, but hey, you start when you know, right? When you know better, do better. Um, so I'm thankful for the significant focus on my own personal well-being now. I think motherhood has done that for me too, um, where all of a sudden it's, you know, what am, what, how am I contributing joy to the world, even if I, if joy has been taken from me, right? So those are separate conversations. Still, what is my responsibility to create? Um, and I, so I think that's why I was so drawn to your focus on art and music because you found a way to contribute your, you've contributed a great deal to humanity and human experiences, but this opportunity to create something that is more loving, yeah. even if you may not have experienced that, right? So oftentimes uh, pain begets pain. Right. And that's the cycle. And then that doesn't that doesn't heal anything. But it takes a lot of I'm going to use your word courage. Right, It takes a lot of courage to disrupt the cycle, because disrupting that cycle, that's where the significant amount of self-worth worth, work is. And that's the hardest work to do. There is a black psychologist. I've forgotten his name. Um, I think it might be something like Menachem Rezma, uh, who believes that people of color, almost from the moment they're aware of life, start to experience racial violence and they embody the trauma. Mm -hmm. We embody the trauma. So, uh, So it, it's it's crippling, it's explosive, and it sometimes, for me, it helps explain why um, I can just go off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a, and also why it's important to do kind of physical things that yeah. that help help balance that. Mm -hmm. so. You know, um, the um, I went to a a retreat, um, an administrative faculty retreat, where the heads of the different academic senates of about of different campuses, along with administrative heads, it was a large retreat, and the the topic was. Um, gender equity and racial equity. And I don't remember much about it, but I remember being in small groups discussions and people talking. And I was with two other Asians. Um, one was the head of the academic Senate, uh, Indian man, 
and my colleague, a young Chinese woman and me, were sitting there. And sitting close to us were these two women, white women. One of them was the head of the academic, uh, incoming head of the academic senate. The other was a high ranking senate member from the Berkeley campus, both social scientists. And, and they somehow were talking about Asian fa male faculty. And they just said, oh, they're no different from white male faculty. Now, and the, and the only Asians in the room were us. <laughs> so I called them on it. And they they became chagrined and, you know, flustered and apologetic. In the, and, and then I wrote to them after saying saying why it was so offensive and 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 also how could they say something when the only Asians in the room were in here you know earshot of you and they wrote back a kind of you know I have a lot of friends who are Asian you know kind of thing mm -hmm. and so uh, because I was um the associate president to to Dick Atkinson, I had to, I right. had to tell him about it because you know, I, in some ways, I represent him. Um, and then I wrote a letter to the head of the academic senate to let him know what had happened. And the um, there was a vice president for health sciences. He was um, a, bl a black man who is now the president of the UC system, Michael Drake. Now, Michael and I were not close, but but we had some warm interactions. He he, he asked me if I had been in a in a uh, internment camp. And I said yes and I explained it to him. And and I said, why do you ask? And he said, because my son is writing a paper on it. And uh, I said, geez. That's nice, uh, you know, and so then he brought in the paper. He said, you know, uh, I'd like to share this with you. So I read his son's paper. And so, you know, I have a library of books related to the camp. So I gave him an art book related to the camp. And, uh, and his son wrote a thank you note. And so, um, I showed, because we had talked about race um, as kind of friends, I showed him the letter I wrote. And he comes down to my office and he said, I just want to suggest to you, Pat, that if you ever experience something like this, um, I'm here to talk to you. And I think, wow, what a kind thing to say. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I, I don't think I've heard that very much in my career. You know, yeah. and though, though you would think that 
at a certain level, yes, you would hear that a lot. You know, yes. you know what other people are struggling with. You know how hard it is. You know how lonely it is. But I thought, wow. So when he became the first black president of the UC system, I said, I'm so glad. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's 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 all about the energy, right? I mean, just in that very simple, I'm here to talk to you. I mean, that that is open. Um, it's an invitation. Um, there, there's nothing value-laden about that invitation. There's nothing with a positive, over overtly positive um, tone or an overtly, you know, negative tone. But it's it's just that that I'm here and we are connected. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that we could give each other in community yeah. overall, right? Yeah. Um, but even across race, I love that this also happens to be an across race interaction because I think sometimes we think we have to carry our things only internal to our own communities right. when there's a lot of partnership across communities. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, these are, you know, the, I just really appreciate um, your time and your spirit. Uh, as, I, as I expected, our time would fly. And so here we are. <laughs> so our time has flown by. Um, Pat, I want to thank you so much for for this conversation. I feel like I need to have another conversation, um, and so many more to kind of just continue. To, I can talk, uh, I can talk with you and listen to you for days. So I'm just so grateful uh, for your time and and wisdom and and just for your spirit today um, as a guest on Student Affairs Now. Thank you. Um, and and you know your. Uh, your commitment to educators like myself and those people like uh, I feel like I've had this opportunity to get to know you over time a little bit over time but even for you know to share this gift with so many people who will now you know uh, get a, a tiny insight um, into you I just think is really really exciting so um, with that um, I'm going to um, now just take a moment to thank our sponsors again leadership and simplicity we totally appreciate your support um, Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in person, for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit www.leadership.org backslash virtual programs, or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And much love um, and a huge shout, a shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the, the producer for the podcast. Um, Nat does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look good and sound good. And so Nat, thank you so much. And finally, if you all are listening, if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairs.com 
www.mailchimpnow.com and scroll down to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, you can also check out the archives, which are very rich. Finally, I'm Mamta Akapani. Much love and gratitude to everyone who is watching and listening. Please make it a beautiful week that honors your soul and spirit and ancestral wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.